This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how you can advance your own career and our collective work by talking candidly about diversity with some tips, tools, and techniques that we all can use to be bigger, bolder, and move faster together. My guest today is not only an extraordinary role model, she's a renowned advocate for equality in the workplace. Michelle Gaston-Williams is the Managing Director of North America Inclusion and Diversity at Accenture and the author of a really empowering new book called Climb, Taking Every Step with Conviction, Courage, and Calculated Risk to Achieve a Thriving Career and a successful life. If you want to give us a call, we'd really love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your stories, um, bring your questions. Michelle is really an amazing repository of knowledge and excellent advice. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us if you want to do it quietly um, and send a note into Patty. You can reach her at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And by the way, you can follow us on Twitter at bizradio. 111 and me at Laura Sarrow. So give us a ring. That's 1-844-WHARTON. Our phones are open and we'd love to know what are the challenges you're facing, what are the solutions you found, and what are questions that Michelle can help you with. Um, before we start the conversation, though, I want to tell you a little bit more about Michelle, and this really won't do her justice. Um, she's a seasoned practitioner, um, and she joined Accenture uh, just about a year ago in July 2017 with more than 25 years of experience under her belt as an advocate for equality within corporate America and an important thought leader around inclusion and diversity. Um, before Accenture, she was co-founder and chief executive officer of Ceiling Breakers, a consulting organization focused on women's empowerment and diversity initiatives. And prior to Ceiling Breakers, Michelle served as the Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion at Credit Suisse as Chief Diversity Officer at Novartis. She's been widely recognized for her work as a diversity practitioner, winning a bunch of awards, but I think one in particular really just says it all, that she won the Maya Way Award for Diversity Leadership, which was awarded by Dr. Maya Angelou herself. So with that, I want to say I'm honored to have Michelle on Women at Work. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So, Michelle, when I read Climb, it reminded me of Lean In in a way, but for women of color. This kind of really candid, informed guide of, based on personal experience that, while written in a way to help women help themselves, it's something that I thought employers could read and really learn from. Is that how you intended it? Absolutely. Um, and one of the reasons why I decided to... Um, uh, come up with the title of the book, Climb, is because I wanted to use myself as the protagonist <laughs> to talk about my career trajectory and my professional journey as a woman of color. I am extremely passionate about ha- uh, helping other women, particularly women of color, climb uh, the corporate ladder. And so I really wanted to not just focus on academic theories and some other things like other self-help books. I really wanted to focus on addressing and 
really uh, dissecting obstacles, but also offering solutions so that these women can get to their next step or aspiration. So um, that was my intention. I really wanted uh, to have this book read by all individuals, but particularly men as allies mm-hmm. for us women and also uh, majority women. So that they have a better understanding in terms of the challenges, the unique challenges that women of color have in the workplace. So it's that that conversation about intersectionality Mm -hmm. of race and gender. So that's essentially what this is. And it clearly comes across. So this, in many ways, is a powerful tool for majority women who want to be allies to women who are dealing with issues of intersectionality. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the one of the things I always say um, to my mentees and others is that women, we are not a monolith, although we share (laughs) the same gender. Um, our experience, our backgrounds are just very different um, as, as, as minority women. So when I say minority or women of color, I mean African-American, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, any other uh, dimension of diversity outside of the majority or Caucasian. So when you talk about intersectionality and these different, yeah. it's both, it, it, and talk to me more about what it means and where it becomes a problem for those people for whom the term may be new. Well, the term was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw at Columbia University several years ago. And as a diversity practitioner, this was a topic that many of us talked about because we really couldn't put our finger on, you know, what was the challenge? What was the difference um, and the experience that um, majority women faced, minority women faced, like, what do you call that? Because right. so, exactly. you know it's there, it just didn't have a name. Exactly. You really couldn't point to it. But you knew it when it occurred, you saw it in action. And so um, intersectionality is basically um, the cross-section of two or more dimensions of diversity that overlap and that cause an individual um, more challenges, more barriers, more obstacles than other individuals might have within the organization. Right. So it's when your minority status is in multiple dimensions of your life. So it may be your gender and your race and your religion and your sexuality, and that each of those things creates another set of barriers that you have to overcome. Exactly. So one of the things that struck me, though, in reading Climb. Um, even at, in all of the stories, whether they were the ones where you succeeded or the challenges you faced, is I had this sense of power, of your power as a person, that your ability to affect change, um, not to mention that you're now in a role with real power to affect change. Talk to me. Did you always feel powerful, Michelle? Early on, I would say no. Um, it, it took me a few years to find my voice. And I found my voice through the help of mentors and sponsors and other individuals who were invested in my success. So I'd say early on, not so much. Um, It wasn't until I started receiving some additional stretch assignments, um, I was getting the feedback that um, I I needed in order to get to that next level. Um, So it, it took a few years before I really was able to you know, firmly anchor myself into my role and have my voice being heard and having a seat at the table and being comfortable sitting there. So that speaks to a way that power comes from position. 
Right. Um, but it also seems like in order to get into that position, there needs to be a belief that you have in your own capacity, a confidence. And, Absolutely. And where did that come from for you? I'd say my parents. Um, so my father's a retired executive. My mother's an entrepreneur. And, you know, it's really interesting when I have two sisters. I'm an identical twin. Uh, my sister's name, my twin sister's name is Monique. My younger sister's name is Alicia. And my father would ask us um, early on, five years old, I remember him saying, so girls, what do you want to do? Who do you want to be? Where do you want to go? And those were sophisticated questions to ask <laughs> kindergartners. And we would just look at him and say, okay, I, I'm only five years old, but uh, I'll take a stab at answering the question. <laughs> but um, I, wh- what they were doing was nurturing our talents and our gifts and preparing us for uh, what was to come. So it was, I, I think my parents were almost prophesizing uh, our futures because they were doing things that would put us out in front of people, um, either by way of sports or piano lessons or, I mean, there was always extracurricular activities happening. I mean, I, I played the clarinet, the flute, and the violin in like a three-year period. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who does that? Do you play any of them now? Uh, the piano I played up until I was in my early 20s. Wow. And, yeah, I, I wanted to go to Juilliard, believe it or not. That was the dream. But uh, I said, no, I, I think I, w- I want to go into business. I want to do what my dad does. So, so yeah, a lot of uh, the nurturing uh, came from my, my parents. And they just believed in unrelenting straight talk, as I call it, um, where you would, we would have dinner together or breakfast together or share a meal together, and they would ask you the tough questions. And you were expected to respond in the best way that you know how. So they were, um, they were, they were nurturing us in a way that I think was meaningful for us as their children because they had very high expectation of themselves, and thus that expectation then transcended onto their kids. It sounds like they weren't just prophesizing that um, what they were doing was sending you ongoing messages of your own capacity. Exactly. And it was that anything is possible, right? So, you know, it's really interesting. I remember, you know, my father always says, and he still says it to us um, to this day, that, you know, you are not here to take up space. You're here to make a difference. And it's up to you to determine what that difference is. That's big. That's that's important, but it's a big thing to give a little kid. It is. It is big. And so... As a result of that, I think I've been incredibly prescriptive and very articulate about the things that I'm passionate about, the things that um, make me take a step back and figure out what my purpose is. Everything that I do is is firmly anchored in um, my convictions, my passion, and my purpose. And that's why I love this work so much. Uh, I transitioned into diversity practice. I started off in marketing, and my father was an executive, and I was basically replicating his career and trying to fill his shoes. Well, his shoes didn't fit. <laughs> and they might and, not even be the right style for you. Exactly. So I, I wanted to take a step back and, and really carve a pathway, create a pathway for myself. And I knew that I enjoyed analytical rigor and all of those cerebral types of things, but I also enjoyed people. And I enjoyed um, the psychology of how people make decisions and how they champion 
uh, initiatives and just how they lead, engage, how they succeed. And that's why I decided to go into strategic planning and organizational development and then transitioned into diversity practice. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I love planning, too. It's like you generate a huge ripple effect. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Michelle Gadsden-Williams, who's the Managing Director of North America Inclusion and Diversity at Accenture and the author of Climb, Taking Every Step with Conviction, Courage, and Calculation risk to achieve a thriving career and a successful life. If you want to join in the conversation, ask Michelle's stories about her past or advice for your future, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Michelle, I want to go back to something that you mentioned about your dad. That So he was clearly, both of your parents were this huge force in making you know and believe that you could achieve. And have um, a drive to strive and the ability to be successful. Yes. Mm-hmm. And your dad was this amazing professional role model for you, even as a kid. Yes. When did you first see a black woman as a role model? My mother. Um, my mom started her career at General Motors. And she had always had this passion of having her own business, starting her own business. She had that entrepreneurial spirit about her. And so at the age of 45, she retired early from GM, and she started her her own business. Um, In fact, she enjoys fashion and styling and that sort of thing. So she would attend conferences and um, design and style celebrities and things like that, and she loved that. And she would have a team of people working with her. Um, so she she always had that entrepreneurial spirit about her. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, retiring at 45, okay, <laughs> that's possible. <laughs> uh, that's doable. <laughs> Maybe I should consider that someday. But at any rate, she, she was my role model. And even before my mom, I'd say my, I had grandmothers who were just strong Southern women with Southern values uh, and just a will to win and um, a will to do anything, but also had empathy for all people. So it's a reinforcement that you got these messages and this belief in yourself in all these different forms growing up so that it was like it nourished you from the inside out. Yes. As you were entering your career, um, where did did you find that kind of support professionally? When did you find yourself mentors and sponsors who could kind of take the next step with you? I would say from the beginning, um, even from my days at right out of undergraduate school, working at you know Bambergers, um, that was like my. Uh, remember the old Bambergers are now called Macy's. I remember it well. I grew up in New York. (laughs) Yeah. And so I, that was my part-time job um, when I was in college. And so I sold women's fragrances in commission and, you know, did all of those kinds of things. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that I've, I've learned about myself is I enjoy people. I enjoy um, extending myself to individuals in a very casual way, mm-hmm. and that then l- translates into um, my thought leadership around understanding human behavior 
and having real respect for human capital. And then when I think about diversity practice, it's constructive disruption, as far as I'm concerned. That's what we call it. Um, it's, it's work that um, there's a, a real meaning behind what we do, and it's this intersection of both passion and purpose, mm-hmm. but also that, that shaded area in the middle. If you think of a, a Venn diagram, the shaded area in the middle where both uh, circles intersect, that's where the power comes in. And I think I've been able to find that in my career. So talk to me more about what constructive disruption is. Because A, I want to say it five times because it really is fun to say. But it sounds, I have an idea of what I think it means. But give it, give it its components for us. Let's see. Okay. So it's meaning, something meaningful, the uh, constructive piece. Mm-hmm. Something meaningful that... Um, it gives you energy and rigor to get up and do what it, whatever it is that you do every single day and do it well and give 150% of it. But the disruption piece is um, that it is something that is – let's see. How do I say this? It, it's something that is, is – it's delivered in a way where it's for the greater good, but it also is um, – almost like the cog in the wheel that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Is it that, so if, if I think about applying it to different settings, it's the idea that particularly when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, that we have a status quo that we know isn't fair and it isn't right. inclusive. And right. how do we disrupt that in a positive way that's actually going to create a more inclusive environment without losing what's good there? That, that's exactly right. And I think that, okay, so as, as we're talking... Um, an endeavor, a plan, or an initiative, mm-hmm. um, it, it has to be carefully curated and orchestrated. So that's the constructive part. The disruption piece, however, is, is more about um, the, 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 the actual activity or the suspension of an activity. So it's almost like changing the way in which you're, you're thinking, changing the way in which you're doing something. So when I think and talk about constructive disruption, there's there's always a clear desired business outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like even in my personal life, I'm thinking um, I started making myself get up earlier so I actually go swimming before work and I've disrupted my oversleeping and replaced it with exercising. And <laughs> so that's my like personal constructive disruption. Um, but in the workplace, it can have a really powerful effect because it's aimed towards advancing an organization's goals. That's right. So That's right. in the role that you're in, you it, it's like you have this kind of enormous charge to help an organization in a way do what society hasn't been able to do. That's right. Walking into a role like this, where do you start? Is it with policy? Is it with practice? Is it with culture? Well, as soon as you walk into an organization, you have to get a sense of the current landscape. So it's really just taking a step back and looking at the what is and getting a sense of where do you need to focus your attention. So that could very well be recruiting. That could very well be retention, promotions, um, pay equity. It could be a lot of different areas. But what I would say, though, is you have to take a step back and get a sense of where the organization is philosophically on this topic. Are they truly 
in the space of diversity and inclusion, where they see it as a true business imperative, or do they see it as just the right thing to do where it's about counting heads and having representation of diverse people walking around an organization? So talk to me about the differences in those two things, because I would imagine you sort of want both. You do want both. And I think you have to have both in order to have a successful diversity and inclusion strategy. So um, I have worked for organizations who are, uh, they focus more on the targets and aspirations of women and or the ethnically diverse or any other individual of diverse profile. And usually a lot of those metrics are captured and reported out on a regular basis. If you're a company that has government contracts, you typically would send that information to the EEOC office. Right. So so that's really – so that suggests that that's about two things. So one is we want things to change societally, and one of the ways that we – can measure them is by looking at headcount and profile. Correct. And so reporting out, I I deeply believe, is really important, and we do want to see those numbers change, but that's not enough, is it? No, it's not enough. And in my view, it's it's easy to get the head head count in the door. You can get talent in the door. What you do with them while they're there is a whole other discussion. <laughs> right. And do how you keep feel, them. Uh, do they feel a sense of belonging? Do they see the North Star for themselves in terms of their career aspirations? Do they see a reflection of themselves when they look at the top of the house within the organization? So it's really and truly, and that's why we call it inclusion and diversity at Accenture, because we believe in the, it's big eye, little be because you know by default you are going to be a diverse organization what you do with people and how they feel about working for your organization is for us the bigger challenge absolutely so you, you brought up a couple of really important points which is one how do people advance and making sure um, that they can see it so that they can be it and that they can believe that the organization is committed to this absolutely so as as I think about this this work of diversity practice, I see it in three three key uh, areas: um, talent, culture, and clients. And those are the three. It's like the three-legged stool. Those are the three components that will make up a, a, a robust diversity strategy. Um, talent is your people and your human capital processes and all of those kinds of things. And it also includes, you know, promotions and um, all of the things that make up the HR practice, the HR uh, life cycle. So it's compensation, it's promotion, um, it. it's recruitment, yep. it's retention. Exactly. And then there's the culture piece. So um, do you feel a sense of belonging when you walk into the place of employment? Mm -hmm. Do you feel as if you have to leave any part of yourself at the door? Can you honestly say that you can be truly human? Right. In the organization where you work. And that's one of the things we pride ourselves on here at Accenture um, is that every single person who walks through our doors, um, whether they're a contractor or a full-time employee, we want them to feel a sense of belonging. We want them to feel as if there is the opportunity for them to reach their full potential and to get to their next level of leadership if that's what they so desire. 
And it's very clear in all the work and the messaging that Accenture does that it's not Absolutely. just window dressing. By the way, Absolutely. this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. Um, I'm having the great pleasure of talking with Michelle Gadsden-Williams today, Managing Director of North America Inclusion and Diversity at Accenture and the author of Climb, taking every step with conviction, courage, and calculated risk to achieve a thriving career and a successful life. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a ring, one eight four four wharton So, Michelle... In that three-legged stool, though, talent makes perfect sense and, and culture, you know, is essential. But client is a new one for me. Talk to me about why clients are so essential to this trio. Well, in this day and age, most of your clients um, who are corporations, they're also looking to see how you're showing up through their doors. So in our B2B business, our clients are the Fortune 500. So if we have a diverse uh, team that's going in to problem solve um, in a consultative kind of way or, um, you know, working on a project together, they look to see how diverse we are. We talk a lot about diversity and inclusion, but we want to be able to walk the talk. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so we, we, we do our best to make sure that we are reflective of the marketplace in which we serve on a regular basis. So... Do you find and if we're not, we take a step back and, and, and course correct? And do, what about in turn? Um, are you looking for clients who share your commitment to diversity, or do you feel like you can help them see their way there um, if that's not their starting point? I'd say both. We, we work with both. So there are some companies that are as sophisticated as we are on the diversity front, and so we, we lock arms on the IND topic. And then there are some who, who have asked for our assistance in some ways. And so we see ourselves almost as a best-in-class organization uh, from an IND perspective. I, I've worked for so many companies doing this diversity work for more than 25 years. And what I will say is Accenture is by far, in my view, um, far ahead of most industries, most companies that I've had the pleasure of working with or for. Yeah, it's truly remarkable. Many of us can see that. Um, so I want to clarify something because it sounds like or not clarify, but kind of reinforce to make sure I'm understanding it, that in this trio of, you know, who are your people? How do you bring in a diverse community, help them stay, feel at home and respected so that they can thrive and contribute and create a culture that allows that to happen? Um, but also that's about what happens internally. So the role of clients is really about how that then plays out externally and how right. you show up to the rest of the world. Right. And to what degree is um, do you find that it's bringing you additional clients? I'd say um, it is a draw. It, it definitely. I would hope so. Yeah, I, I would say for most of the organizations that either have done business with us, want to do business with us, continue to do business with us is because of our value system and our value proposition around this notion of being the most inclusive and diverse organization um, you know, in the world. That's just one of our goals. Absolutely. Think, yeah. So, and, and it's also about innovation. So we're, we're at the end of the day, everything that we do is anchored around um, technology, 
digital, and so forth. Right. So diversity also helps us to innovate uh, as well. We bring you know diverse individuals together. That creates diverse thinking and a better product in the end. Absolutely. So. We have to take a short break, so stay with us. After the break, Michelle and I are going to continue our discussion about our book, Climb, and our ongoing work to create more diversity and inclusion in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Michelle Gadsden-Williams, the Managing Director of North America Inclusion and Diversity at Accenture, and the author of the recently released book, Climb, taking every step with conviction, courage, and calculated risk to achieve a thriving career and a successful life. Um, So, Michelle, welcome back to Women at Work. Thanks. Great to be here. So before the break, we were talking about your background um, and the powerful force that your parents played in helping you see what you could be and prepare you to be that. And one of the things that you mentioned when we were talking about your dad is that um, his policy was unrelenting straight talk. Yes. And when I think of that, I think about it, it, it almost like two sides of a coin um, that really talking about things directly without hemming and hawing and how both powerful and frightening that can be <laughs> and um, talking about taboo subjects mm. in your household. Which was it? Was it both? Um, and how can we learn to do it without, you know, having the world around us implode? <laughs> Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, in our household, I'd say there was no subject that was off limits. As long as you came to the conversation with a point of view and were able to um, not debate your side, but at least be able to articulate the why behind your position. Okay. It was it, – it, it was. I, I really appreciated having those conversations. Um, it was almost like – debate class. (laughs) Can you give me an example of one? Gosh. Let's see. Is that my own teenage daughter where I think about these provocative conversations that show up at our dinner table? Well, okay. So during the holiday season, um, we had a conversation, my siblings and spouses, and we all come together every year. Family's very important to us all. And we had a conversation about the ABC television show Blackish, mm-hmm. and whether or not that was an accurate depiction of African American middle class or upper middle middle class. And so, in that process, was there a, was it a fun debate, a heated debate? It was fun. I mean, we agree to disagree, so <laughs> <laughs> it's usually. It's fun, but everyone has their perspective and their point of view, and we debate, but it's all done in the spirit of love at the end of the day. Does it apply to bringing questions for which you don't have the answers, but you want to explore it? Yes. And so if you if you grew up knowing that you could do that and developing the skills to do that, um, what's its place in the workplace? How do we make room for that in a way that's appropriate and productive? Well, I think you you... You flex this muscle of understanding um, understanding and meeting people where they are on any given subject. That's fair. 
And in the dialogue, um, if you're ta- especially when we're talking about things like diversity and inclusion, which you know, like you were saying before, before we had intersectionality as a term, you know, we see it, we know what's going on, we don't have a name for it. If we talk only about women's issues, there were a whole host of experiences until Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and a whole dialogue that started to emerge. We didn't have language to talk about what we knew. In the workplace, how can we start talking with each other about diversity and inclusion in ways that can be productive and not polarizing? You know, I I believe in courageous conversations and putting the hard subjects out on the table, such as race and gender topics. Um, sometimes we tend to skirt around some of those topics or those issues, um, but I believe in, in, in let's deal with it head on. Let's talk about what it is. Let's demystify it. Let's debunk it. And, you know, talk about why is it good for business? How is it going to help you as a leader in terms of how you lead and engage with people? And the legacy as a leader. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Mm-hmm. Accenture has an extraordinarily, an extraordinary um, institutional system to enable some of these kinds of conversations, the Building Bridges program. Um, Could you talk about what it is, how it operates, what you're learning? Sure. So our Building Bridges, so we we believe that it is extremely important to provide an open forum in the workplace to have open, honest discussions about some of the societal issues that impact our people and their families and our clients every single day. And that could be issues of race. It could be issues of a lot of different things, um, LGBTQ-related. It could be just anything that that provides um, education and awareness around a topic that might be sensitive, but it certainly has an internal impact. And so we want to create that safe environment. And so thus we created this platform called Building Bridges. And it's basically an open dialogue on diversity-related topics, um, and it's an open line of communication for our people. So everyone who works for Accenture can participate in it. They can talk about how they're feeling about certain things, certain subjects. They can share their experiences, and uh, we encourage them to be what's, open and honest. What's the structure of how it operates? Is it a town hall? Is it a blog? What's the it's form it takes? Yeah, it's a webcast? It's a webcast. Yes. And how many people can participate, and is it moderated? It is moderated, um, either by someone from the Center of of Diversity uh, Excellence Office or through our CEO, Julie Sweet, or our CHRO, Ellen Shook. And so the moderators, um, they're helping to keep the conversation productive? Yes. Yes, but but also provide their own perspectives on different topics as well. So people it, want to hear from the leadership in terms of how how do they feel about certain topics and how does it impact them? So it's not just employee to employee. It's important that the leadership is involved in this. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's, since you've been there, um, how many of them have you either observed or participated in? Would you guess? In, let's see. In the year that I've been here, um, Maybe one okay. since I've been here. Yeah. What was it? I've only been here 12 months. It's true. It's <laughs> relatively new. Um, I would love to know, was there something that stood out for you that surprised you or that you learned from it when you listened to it? 
Well, just the concept in general. There aren't many um, CEOs and CHROs that provide this platform Mm -hmm. for their employees to talk about things that are on their hearts and minds. Yeah, and I think... that's yeah, huge. It's unheard of. It is, it is huge. And, it, um, and, so. and that platform is not the webcast. It's being able to talk honestly about these difficult topics. Exactly. Exactly. And so what it, it, it breeds trust by having an open dialogue with the leadership, an open dialogue with our people, where they can ask anything they want, for the most part, and get a response. I mean, it's just rave reviews. Yeah, about it. it. Everything I've heard is wonderful. It's it's absolutely wonderful, and you just hear the perspective from the leadership right then and there in real time. It's absolutely wonderful. And it seems like it also then has the ripple effect of making people feel like who they are is okay, that they can be their true selves at work. Exactly. I want to talk about that a little bit, but from a very personal perspective. Um, You wrote a delight, actually a delightful and insightful article um, about a decision you made about your own hair. And I was wondering if you would share it with our listeners and connect it to this idea of um, why are these things like your hairstyle, especially for women of color, why does it become so important in the workplace? Well, you know, I just had this conversation. I was talking to... um, uh, a women's group in cable telecommunications yesterday in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we talked about women of color, the hair conversation, it's it's a thing. It's, it's a real conversation, and it's something that we wrestle with, that we struggle with, that, um, you know, going back to the beginning of time, I mean, it's just a, a topic that is so sensitive that most people don't necessarily realize how sensitive it is. Which, which also so, suggests there are potent issues embedded in it. Exactly. Like straight hair, you know, almost constitutes, you know, goodness. And um, being more like the majority, uh, whereas kinkier hair, um, there's a negative connotation uh, attached or associated with it. So that is... That's the way it was, you know, and that mm-hmm. was the interpretation back way back when. But today, um, I think we, we have a much different perspective on it. But this notion of natural hair, this phenomena, this, this movement has really taken hold, I'd say, over the last maybe 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas no more chemical processing, um, you're wearing your hair the way it grows out of its follicle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But it, especially in a corporate culture, like I I don't even have the racial component to it to deal with. But when I let my hair dry by itself, it's kind of crazy. And my daughter calls them my crazy brain waves. Going back to that idea is our hair, our hair, or does it suggest something about our character? And that taming that seems to be an expectation when we go to work. Yeah. And so um, for you especially, you're working at the highest levels of corporate culture. Um, What was it that made you feel safe that you could have your natural hair? Well, I can't say that I felt safe. It was it was a risk. Um, So let me let me tell the story about how I embraced my natural hair uh, and how I made that transition. So um, a few years ago. You know, over time, I, I have been chemically straightening my hair every six months to to, to get that smooth, silky look. Since you were a little and, kid. Yeah, from the age of 16. Wow. And so 
um, I have done that, you know, for years. So fast forwarding to current day, um, I unfortunately had a health situation where um, I had surgery and I couldn't move my arm very well to either blow dry or flat iron my hair. So I said, okay, I have to go back to work, but I, I just can't, I can't lift my arm very well. So I said, let me try something different. Maybe I will just let it air dry and see how that looks. And so I did that. And I, I fell in love with the way it looked. <laughs> That's great. And so this was, I was still on medical leave. And so I tried it out, you know, for a couple of days. I then went to go see a hairstylist who specialized in curly hair. Um, and so she was teaching me how to style it and do some other things with it. And I said, okay, when I go back to work, this is how I'm going back. I, I'm not going to, you know, uh, I'm going to go with my naturally curly hair and whoever likes it, great, whoever doesn't, because this is more of a health issue for me, more so than anything right. else. So I went to work, and as soon as I walked into the boardroom, um, all of my colleagues, you know, looked at me and said, wow. I mean, they noticed it immediately as soon as I walked into the boardroom. Right. Know, wow, you, um, is that a new hairstyle? Oh, that's great. Um, I love it. You know, all of those kinds of things. But what was more interesting was the the lack of receptivity that I received from other um, women of color. And why was that? They were a little bit more critical. Because... It, um, were you breaking a rule? No, I think for most of us, good hair, quote unquote, oh. is, fine, is fine and straight. So done hair is good hair. Exactly. So straight hair that's quaffed and it moves and shakes that's considered good hair, and that is, you know, part of the, the corporate uniform. Mm-hmm. So you're done. You know, you have the beautiful suit or beautiful dress on, and your hair is coiffed, and it's moving from side to side. It's done. Whereas um, a natural, curlier hairstyle doesn't move quite as much. It's a little bit more stiff. There's shrinkage uh, due to the curl pattern. And so it doesn't look quite as flowing. Right. And so when we think about even stepping aside from what it means to embrace that there's something beautiful the way that it grows without all that processing, um, that part of what we always struggle with is how do we show up at work, A, so that we're comfortable in our own selves, but also so that we look appropriate in that context and that, you know, we can't get past the fact that from head to toe, how we dressed functions, whether we like it or not, as symbols to other people that they make meaning out of. Exactly. So Exactly. And, and so so what was really interesting was, you know, there was a, a black female colleague of mine who said, you know, in, in my opinion, some hairstyles are just not appropriate for the workplace. Interesting. And I, I, I was I was stunned. Actually, I was deflated because bet. I was hoping that she would have been a little bit more supportive, given the fact that she knew what kind of surgery I had and that I just couldn't, you know, I, I just couldn't do my hair the way I normally did it. So I just expected her to have a little bit more empathy. Right. And from the outside, I would hope that somebody would have the empathy just because it makes you happier. By exactly. the way, 
This is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking to Michelle Gaston-Williams, Managing Director of North America Inclusion and Diversity at Accenture, and the author of Climb, Taking Every Step with Conviction, Courage, and Calculated Risk to Achieve a Thriving Career and a Successful Life. If you want to join in the conversation, you want to talk to us about your own hair experiences or how you face personal change in the workplace, we'd love to hear from you. That's one eight four four wharton That's 844-942. 7866. Um, so, Michelle, I want to take this and, and turn a little bit to talking about, because I know that hair is potent this way, and it's something that lots of women of color talk about, wrestle with. Um, but there's another thing that I hear women, as particularly very successful senior women, um, both of majority and of color, talk about, which is the need to work twice as hard. And and what the risk is when you make mistakes. Can you talk to me about what your experience has been with this and what advice you would give to other women regarding this? Yeah, it goes back to, at least in an African-American household, a Southern household, um, we've always been told by my parents, or at least it was always implied, they may, may not have come right out and said it, but that you have to be twice as smart twice as good, and you may get half as far as your peers. And so with that said, um, you it was just understood that you had to be that much faster, that much smarter, that much quicker, that much bolder than everyone else, that it, most of these organizations just weren't built for individuals like myself. Right, and, and so having said that, I, you 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 had to come armed, ready, and prepared for what was to come, and to be really excellent. And an important point you made is to only get half as far. Because when I first heard that that phrase, working twice as hard, it was from Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, both white women. In Ruth Bader Ginsburg's case, a white Jewish woman, um, but they didn't have to work twice as hard to get half as far. They had to work twice as far to get hard to get to the same place. And right. I think this is an example of where intersectionality comes in and the pressure okay. that women of color face to really be excellent. How in a world where we get all this business advice, embrace, fail, take risks, how do you navigate that in a world where you also can't make mistakes? That's a great question. You know, I, I was just having this conversation with a, another girlfriend and she, we were talking about this notion of women of color in corporate America and how we still are underrepresented in senior management and in the C-suite in most organizations. But yet, when we look at the research, the data, the statistics, you know, black women um, are, you know, have more advanced degrees than any other uh, demographic, um, and, and the list goes on and on in terms of all the things that we have. We have the pedigree, we have the leadership capability because we are, you know, leaders in the church and other things, but yet we're, we're still not given a chance to demonstrate our true talents, and we're not no one's really taking a risk on us by promoting us into the positions of leadership. Right, because of a whole series of bi of subconscious biases that exist. Exactly, exactly. And so it was this conversation of, you know, women of color deserve a seat at the table. 
we deserve to lead in our organizations. We just need an opportunity to do so and to demonstrate who we are and what we can do. And that's why it's so important for us as women to tell our stories and to ensure that all of our, our work gets acknowledged, you know, and how we need to support each other. I mean, I talk about, are you your sister's keeper? Are we our sister's keeper? Yes, we are. So talk to me more about how that manifests in your day-to-day life. In terms of how I... How you're your women. sister's keeper, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's, it's my or any woman's indelible responsibility to ensure that another woman succeeds. If you're going to sit next to her and just watch her um, suffer in silence or you're going to leave her to her own devices to figure out how she's going to survive or make it in her respective position, then there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Yeah. And so for me, I believe that it is my responsibility to guard her, to protect her, to champion her, advocate for her, um, encourage and support her in a way that's meaningful for her because that because I'm already here and that's my job is to make sure that those who are underrepresented also have an equal opportunity. And what I kind of love about the way that you put that is it feels like a personal obligation to another individual. Absolutely. But yet it also has a collective benefit because if we each take care I heard one woman use the phrase if we throw down the ladder to the women who are coming up, um, it helps mobilize more people. And if, you know, as you were saying before, there's our, the moral imper- imperative, but there's also the business imperative. And that it sounds like we've got to start one person at a time in those individual relationships if we're going to keep, bring enough people up to change the business outcomes. Exactly. And I, I've seen that too many times where there are some women, once they've crossed the drawbridge, they roll it up right after they cross and no one else is coming coming over to the other side. I've seen that too many times in my career, and it's really a shame to see it. It's when, really disheartening on so many levels. When you see that, when you're encountering women who are not reaching out to you and the other women around us, um, is that a moment where you can conjure your ability for unrelenting straight talk, or is it sometimes it's more sensitive and you have to navigate it in other ways? It depends on who it is and where she sits in the organization, but um, in my position, there is no, there's really not a whole lot of room for, you know, politicking and things like that. I, you have to say what needs to be said. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. Mm-hmm. And so I executive coach a lot of people, so I have no qualms about pulling an individual off to the side to say, you know, this could have been done a little bit differently or, uh, you know... I don't understand why this was done, and here's what I would suggest. Uh, so there is a way to have that tough conversation, but um, you know, at the end of the day, we are our sister's keeper. Absolutely. In my view. So within an organization, because I know that for you, that extends deep into your personal life and to every, and you talk about it beautifully in the book and all the different communities you've been part of. Um, yes. Within your organization, how are you helping other women take care of each other. Wow. Well, we have, um, even before I, I'm not going to take any credit for any of this, (laughs) Uh, we have uh, employee resource groups. We have a women's network. We have um, 
International Women's Day that's pretty robust around the world. I mean, we I can't even tell you all of the, the supports and the <laughs> mechanisms that we have in place here. I know uh, we've done a whole show just show. <laughs> and we've done a whole show just talking about them and we didn't exhaust the list. Exactly. I mean, there, there's just so much support here for, for women, um, more so than any other place I've ever been. So, and that was one of the reasons why I decided to come to this company, because of all of the wonderful things that it has that I myself personally did not have exposure to. So, Michelle, in terms of the culture. now that you're, you know, in this impactful role at this extraordinary organization, you've got this book out on the market. Um, what are you hoping to do next? Where do you want your good to go? Wow, that's a great question. In, over the years, all I've ever wanted to do was to leave a place in better condition than when I entered. That's all I want to do. And I enjoy my time here at Accenture, and I really see myself here for the long haul. I'm just shy of my 50th birthday. So um, you got plenty of time. Some, <laughs> yeah, I still have some <laughs> runway left, but um, I, I truly get the most gratification out of helping the next generation of leaders reach their full potential. And so I, I enjoy the coaching and sponsoring and mentoring and all of the things that I do to help people within the organization. Um, I would love to write another couple books. Um, this is my first. <laughs> Um, but I, this is something that, that I've always wanted to do, and I finally got around to doing it. Uh, and the book is doing very well, which I'm, I'm very pleased about. But not surprised but, at all to hear. Not surprised at all. And thank you. That was kind of you to say. But um, I, I just want to be able to continue to do great work where, where I am, to sit on the boards and to help people wherever I am. But uh, again, just leaving an organization in better condition than when I entered. Michelle, we're all grateful for the work that you're doing. If people want to learn more about how to go to work at Accenture, where can they find out how to do that? On our website, www.accenture.com. And if they want to find, purchase Climb, Amazon? Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, Walmart, you name it. Fantastic. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. We really are grateful. Thank you so much. By the way, if you're out there and you have a question about anything that you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com and be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111 and me at Laura Zarrow. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, as well as our fantastic sound sound engineer, Dan Simpkins. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on SiriusXM. So I hope all of you are out there leaving the worlds that you're in a better place for the people that follow you. Check out our author's books on Amazon and stay tuned next week. Looking forward to it all. Thanks, everyone. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.